0: please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, continuing in our study of God's word this morning, continuing in our study of Genesis, slowly working our way through. And before we jump into our text this morning, would you begin by joining me in a word of prayer, asking for God's help as we study his word. Our Father, You tell us in Isaiah 53 that your word is like the rain. As it comes, it is sure to produce food. It is sure to produce and affect this world in a whole variety of ways. And just as rain is sure to cause the seeds to grow and allow the farmer to harvest so, O oh God, it will not, your word will not fail, but to have an effect to produce and to affect the thing to which you send it. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to be attentive to your word, that we may be pierced by it, that we may be wounded by it, and we may find healing in it, that we would know you, O oh God and in knowing you that we might better walk in your ways. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 14. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible or it's been a long time since you have been in church, this is the very first book of the Bible, very first document as you open it up, the book of Genesis. And there's here we find ourselves in chapter 14 and, and chapter 14 is a a difficult one there is good reason, and it'll become obvious as we read through it, why I didn't ask uh, Jeff earlier to read through this. In fact, if I had asked any of you uh, to, to read through it from the pulpit, you probably would have said, sure, looked at it, and then said, you know what, I'm not available on Sunday. It, it is filled with names that are names of people and places that are unfamiliar. You have Amraphel of Shinar, and Kedolemur from Elam and Bursha and Shinab and Shemember and the king of Zeboim and, and so many more. I mean, at, at any moment as I was reading this through many months ago and I'm meditating on it, you're expecting um, Legolas and Gimli and Boromir, you know, characters from the Lord of the Rings series to begin popping up on the scene and you're, you're waiting for Aragorn and Frodo and Bilbo Baggins to, to jump up. Um, it, it just, all of these names that are just so foreign to any of us. But What we find in this chapter is important for us. There is an axis of evil. There is an alliance of rebellion. Climax is here at the end of chapter 14 with this, this individual that never shows up again in the book of Genesis. In fact, you won't hear again about him until we read that Psalm, Psalm 110, which we read earlier in the service, Melchizedek. And we have all of these questions about what does this have to do with you and I? What does, this, what does this chapter, chapter 14, how does it relate to what's going on in the life of Abram? How does it relate with what's going on in the, in, the, in the story of Genesis, in the story of the Bible? What does it have to do with our lives this week? How we live out what God has called us to do. But every word of God proves true, and is essential. There are no non-essential words of God. And this chapter is important. So one of the ways that we're going to work our... One of The the way that we are going to work through this chapter this morning is by taking section by section, and I'm just going to read it and then try to explain it, because it is and it can be a little confusing. If we were to just read through it, your eyes would glaze over in a moment. You would get lost in what's happening, and we just kind of want to walk through it slowly, and then at the very end, we will try to unpack some of the things that are happening in this chapter, all right? So here we find ourselves, Genesis chapter 14. Look at verse 1 with me. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king, and here he is the king of the city of Shinar or Shinar, Ariok, that's another king, king of Elisar, kedor king of the city of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that word is literally Goyim. Apparently that, that city of which Tidal is the king of is so diverse that it was named the city of Goyan, the city of nations, the city of peoples. And there are four kings listed here. They're all south uh, of the Dead Sea. They're all within the land or right around there on the border of the land of Canaan that God has promised his people. I'm sorry, all of these, these are the four kings that are to the north. They are the north and west outside of the land of Canaan. They are up towards what would be modern day Syria. Uh, and these are not kings as we think of them today. This is not like the king of Britain, or who's not really, who's more like a mascot than anything. This is a these are true kings, but they are true kings over city states. They rule over these cities and and maybe a a small area around that city, but really they their rule is over the city of which they are reigning. And there are multiple cities even within a, in a region. And these cities would all have their own kings. And these kings in a region often, though not always, often worked together. And these four kings are working together. And what will become clear is that this one king, though he is listed first, third, Kedorlaomer, he is kind of the head. He is the leader. He is the one who is at the very top. His, his kingdom, his rule, his city perhaps is the largest so we have these four kings living outside the land of Canaan east and to the north Then we look at verses 2 through 4 and these kings they made war with here are new names Bera, king of Sodom Bersha, king of Gomorrah Shinab, king of Adma Shemeber, king of Zeboim and the king of Bela that is the city of Zoar All these joined together in the valley of Siddam, that is the the salt sea, the valley of salt. In 12 years, they served Kedor, Leomer, and in the 13th year, they rebelled. So here we have four kings to the northeast, and now we have here within the land of Canaan, south of the Dead Sea, you've got these five kings. And apparently, these five kings had been subservient to Kedor Lamer for 12 years. And after 12 years, in the 13th year of uh, of this subservience, they rebelled against him. So what we find is that Kedor Lamer, after the rebellion in the 14th year, he gathers his troops together, he gathers some alliance, his axis of evil, so to speak, and he begins to march south and west to conquer these rebellion people and here you can kind of cue the star wars theme music for the imperial evil people okay so here we, you can have that kind of going through your mind And genesis 14 to 15 genesis 14 5 to 7 kind of gives us a sense of how powerful these this axis of evil how powerful they are Because when they come, they don't just come and and skirt around any opposition. What we find is that wherever they go, they are intentionally attacking every people group and every power, no matter how great, along the way. So Genesis 14, verses 5 to 7. In the 14th year, Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked, and here we have this group, the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shavai Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. So as they are traveling down to put down this rebellion, they are making war with every people group along the way. We have those first three groups, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim. Deuteronomy 2 verses 10 and 21 gives us a a highlight of what These people are. It calls them a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Deuteronomy 3 tells us that one of the leaders of the Rephaim had a a bed. He was so large, so intimidating, so powerful. His bed was, the bed frame was made of iron. And it was 13 and a half feet long. It needed to be long because he himself was such a, an impressive, large, tall man. This is no ordinary people. And yet these are the people that they are coming. And not just beating, they are routing them along the way. And then since that's not enough, they also go out of their way to raid the Amalekites and the Amorites and driving them out of their mountain mountain fortresses into the wilderness they are pursuing them this military this this army is is massive it is powerful it is strong so these four kings come confident victorious and now they come and they fight against these five kings who have allied themselves together in hopes to defy this axis of evil. We arrive at the actual battle in verse 8 of chapter 14. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined, in, joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim. And this valley of Siddim is south of the Dead Sea against Kidorlaermer king of Elam, Tidal king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar and Ariak king of Elisar, Four kings against five. Now the valley now the valley of Siddim, was full of asphalt, that's bitumen or tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, that is some of their army fell there. And the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they that's the five kings with their army, they They took all the goods. They, since the armies are gone, the cities are now exposed. So the next thing they do is they invade the cities, raid, pillage, plunder the cities, stealing everything that's not nailed down, anything of worth, and not just things, but also people. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. So here they conquer, they defeat, they rage, they pillage, they plunder. But the story does not end there. Look with me at verses 13 to 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of, and here are three individuals all linked together. They're in this region, Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So Abram, who is living at this point, he's, he's living, remember chapter 13, him and Lot divided? They separated. Lot choosing for himself to live near Sodom and Gomorrah because the land looked good. We looked at two weeks ago when we looked at that passage. That was how poor of a choice that was for Lot. Lot leads, he goes, and, and, and Abram goes his separate way, trusting in the Lord. So Abram and him divided. And Abram, living a good distance away, hears about this. Someone escapes, knows that Lot has a relative, goes to tell Abram. And Abram's response is to raise up all of them in his home, 318, that are equipped for battle. He he goes to these three individuals who have allied themselves with him and he leads this other alliance, and he does something that no one has been successful at up to now. He he wins out over these kings and their armies. In fact, the way he does it is he does this by a risky maneuver. He divides his forces and attacks by night. It's very, you look forward, and this is very similar to how Gideon responds when the people of Israel are under attack. And, and then Abram, Almost as a picture of Christ leads captivity captive as he returns, saving everyone and everything. And Genesis fourteen seventeen to twenty four becomes the capstone to everything that's happening. He's returned; everyone's safe. And the king of Sodom and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And we are not to think that these two kings are in lockstep. It's almost as if the king of Sodom's coming out. He's got a bunch of kings with him. And before he can do anything or say anything, the king of Salem jumps to the front of the line. And he's got first words to say. He brings out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him Melchizedek tithe or a tenth of everything he has. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, honor, eshcol, and mamre, let them take their portion. Here we have, First, if the first half of the chapter is all about a battle, this second half is all about a blessing. Abram will receive one blessing from Melchizedek and he refuses this other blessing from the king of Sodom. Before Sodom can say anything, this king of Sodom, Melchizedek steps up and he, he blesses him. Gives him bread and wine. And Abram, this this great man who has just conquered and defeated this axis of evil, this alliance of wicked kings, this great man who has been personally called and chosen by God, this great man who will become the father of Israel, the God's chosen people, this man, his response to Melchizedek is to tithe, to give a tenth to him. He honors Melchizedek. And it begs the question, who is Melchizedek? Why does Abram honor him? If we had time, this would be a sermon in and of itself. To look how Genesis here 14, Melchizedek shows up for only a couple of verses. He shows up again in Psalm 110 and then the author of Hebrews will just unpack who this guy is or rather how he pictures Christ for us. He is the king of, Sol- the king of Salem. Most likely what will become the king uh, of rather the, the city of Jerusalem. But here the king of Salem, the king of peace, and he is not just a king, he is a a priest of God most high. And you and I, we cannot skip over that because here we have something that would have been unusual. Because in the law, God demands that those who are kings are not allowed to make sacrifices. They are not allowed to act as priests. And those who are priests are not allowed to act as kings. And yet here we find someone who is both king and priest. And he pictures one who was to come who will be both king and priest. Another thing that we find interesting is that his family history isn't isn't given to us. He just pops on the scene. We're given no indication that he has a father, that he has a family. The author of Hebrews, rather the psalmist in Psalm 110, will talk about this. You will be a priest. Christ will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is, he will have an eternal priesthood. No beginning, no ending. Just as we have no listed beginning or ending of Melchizedek. And he is clearly important. He blesses Abram. He gives Abram a meal of bread and of the fruit of the vine. Just as Christ will one day give his people a meal of bread and the fruit of the vine. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything. And this has clearly sparked the imagination of the people of Israel. I mean, who is this man? It is what becomes the foundation for that psalm in Psalm 110 that we read earlier. In fact, that psalm is quoted and alluded to more than any other passage in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7 picks this up and it traces how Melchizedek, though he was a real man in his own time, with all the limitations of a real individual, yet he becomes in a small way through the lens of Genesis, he becomes a picture of who Christ will be. And you'll notice Abram responds to the blessing of Melchizedek by honoring with him his giving. But then you'll notice what the next king does. And here we have the two kings, king of Salem, Melchizedek. The first words out of his mouth are what? Blessed be Abram. Do you notice what the first words out of the king of Sodom's mouth are? Give me give me. This is a weaselly kind of man. I mean, Abram, honoring the spoils of war, he has the right to everything that he has just won. He's the one who beat the kings. He has the right to claim it for himself. And this guy has the audacity to say, Give me the people. I'll let you take the stuff. I'll let you take the things. But give me the people. They're mine. And Abram has the right to claim it all. And yet his response is to say, in not too polite words, no thank you. In fact, he he makes it clear, I don't want anything from you. I don't want a sandal strap, not a shoelace from you. you. I want nothing from you, lest it be said that in any way I have been made rich off the people of Sodom. Clearly, Sodom's reputation has preceded it. Abram knows what Sodom is all about, and he wants nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter if they're fabulously wealthy. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. And this is how the story ends, with him refusing the king of Sodom's offer. So what does any of this have to do with you and I? I think the first thing we need to see is Abram is responding in faith here. And the way he responds here in faith is dramatically different than the way he's going to respond even before in chapter 13. So, remember with me a couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 13. Abram and Lot, their land, they have both grown, they have both been blessed. Lot is being blessed because he is with Abram. And now their blessing has, uh, rather their abundance has caused hostility between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. So Abram says, look, divide from me, separate from me. I'll give you first pick. Abram takes a step back and he takes the passive role in this. Even though he has the right to take first choice. He trusts God with fulfilling the purposes of the land. His promises for the land. And Lot chooses to go to where the city of Sodom is, where that valley is well watered. In that situation, Abram's response of faith is to step back, to wait, to to leave it in God's hands. But that's not the response of faith here, is it? We tend to think that godly men are men that are weak, That are pacifists, passive. They're the guys who tweet out after a tragedy, you know, thoughts and prayers. And yet, faith here mandates so much more. Abram straps on his sword, leads the charge into a risky maneuver at night. Faith went to war. And he risks everything. You know, faith doesn't rob Abram of his guts. It gave him guts. That is, he he knew what God had promised him. And for the sake of his family, who was under that promise, he was going to go to battle, trusting God with it all. This army that no one else had been able to fight, faith in God made Abraham as fierce as a lion. But knowing when we need to wait and when we need to fight, when we need to act, that takes wisdom, doesn't it? Because if you get them mixed up, terrible things will happen. In just a couple of chapters, Abram's going to get mixed up. And it's good to see when Abram fails in this. Abram knows the promise of God that he will, a great nation will come from him. And so he listens to the voice of his wife, takes her maidservant and tries to have a child through her. And that doesn't turn out so well. He is taking matters into his own hand rather than trusting God. Paul will at times allow himself to be imprisoned. The Apostle Paul... When he has the right as a Roman citizen to not be beaten and not be bound. And yet there are other times when he will pronounce before the beating comes, before the imprisonment comes, he will announce that he is a Roman citizen. Sometimes he waits till after, sometimes he doesn't say it at all, and sometimes he does it before. And when should we do it? It takes wisdom, and we need wisdom from God to know when to act, when to wait. When to be still and when to be serving. We must learn to trust God in different situations. More than that, we we must learn to trust God even with our own and others' failures and sins. That is, we faith trusts God to use human sin and failure to accomplish his purposes. In a moment, we will see how God in this chapter is acting on the promises to meet Abraham, that he made to Abraham. But through this battle and the aftermath, God is blessing Abram. We've got to ask how and why is Abram even involved in this, this international conflict? Why does Abram care? He's not motivated by wealth. Clearly, at the end, he gives all of it away. He is involved here. Why? Because Lot's involved. And why is Lot there? Lot shouldn't even be there, right? He should never have chosen. In chapter 13, he moves near Sodom and Gomorrah. Here in chapter 14, he is in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he himself is taken captive. He himself is kidnapped. Lot should never even have been there. You can imagine Abram and Sarai for years learning from Lot what's going on. Oh, you've moved into Sodom now. Grieved by the decisions that he has made. Worried about the effect that moving into Sodom is going to have on his family. On Lot and his wife. Some of you... Look at the decisions that your children or others that you care about are making and you are worried, you are anxious. And Abram gets involved only because Lot is kidnapped and God, despite the sin of Lot, God is still working in this to accomplish his good promises. Lot sins, yes, but God taking that sin and using it for his own glory to achieve his own good promises and purposes for Abram. Lot shouldn't have been there. And yet, he was. And we find it to be true what Paul writes in Romans eight twenty eight when he tells us that We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God's purposes and promises are not limited to our mistakes. They're not limited by our mistakes or the mistakes of others. You and I, we sin, we fail, we make mistakes, but God never does. And in fact, through every one of our decisions, no matter how painful it may be to look back on, no matter how much we may wish we could change something, Yet we must know and live in the faith that in all of it, God reigns and he is using it to accomplish his good for us if we have trusted in Christ Jesus. But he will not fail you. He cannot fail you. You worry about your kids and your grandkids. He will not fail to work in them. There's skeletons in your closet. God sees them, he knows. And he is not restricted by them in the least. Our shame becomes in the hand of God the means, the instrument by which he will exalt his glory and fulfill his promises to us. And this leads us to look on those promises. And this whole chapter is about God fulfilling his promise to Abram. We need to read the life of Abraham. Through the lens of chapter 12, those first few verses where God is making those promises to his his servant, Abram, whom he has called, whom he has chosen. This this whole chapter of Genesis, I'm sorry, this whole story of Abram and the whole book of Genesis needs to be read in light of those verses. God is fulfilling his promises. He says that he will make Abram's name great. And certainly at the beginning of this chapter, you can see Abram's name. Abram's name is being made great. He's got three men who have allied themselves with him. But by the end of chapter 14, everybody knows who Abram is, don't they? He's the guy who beat the army that no one else beat. And he did it with 318 of his own men, a few guys of these other, of these other men who allied with him. Everyone knows who Abram is. God is making his name great, fulfilling his promise to him. He tells Abram, you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And certainly through this, Abram is a blessing to others. Not only to Lot, but even to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even to those who One, nothing to do with God. He is a blessing. God also promises, I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Kedor Laomer would have gotten away with it had he not taken Lot. Can you imagine that? In the moments, perhaps, before Abram had him executed or before he, as he was routing him, Kedolairam asked, why did you attack me? You stole my nephew. And him dishonoring Abram and his family meant that he reaped the curse of God, and yet the ones who had allied themselves with Abram, they received the blessing. They were able to take their share from all that had been won. And ultimately, God promises Abram, saying, I will bless you, and he does that through Melchizedek, doesn't he? Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, Chapter 14 shows us that during even international conflict, God is working to fulfill his promises to his people. So what promises do you need to be reminded of this morning? That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Romans 8.1 Or a few verses later, verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans eight thirty eight. For I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation... will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Is it the promise of Jesus in John 14 that he has gone away and he is preparing a place for us and he will come again? Is it the promise of Christ at the end of Matthew 28 where Jesus promises to be with us always? Perhaps you are struggling with sin. There's some secret internal struggle that no one else knows about. But you feel as if God has not done anything in you, as if you are helpless before this thing, be it bitterness, be it anger, be it frustration, be it anxiety, be it lust. As if you have no power, no control. When Christ promises, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Perhaps you need to hear what Paul writes in Philippians chapter four, that my God will supply your every need according to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps it is time for you to believe the most important promise of all. In John 3:16, that familiar verse for many of us, "For God so loved the world, so loved the world. not this neutral place, not this OK place, not even this big place, but this place in rebellion." God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, you hear that promise? Whoever believes in him, not whoever works for him, not whoever does enough religious duties for him, not whoever gets his, goes through enough spiritual or Whatever experiences there are in the world for him, but whoever simply believes in him, rests in him, repents and turns and lays hold of Jesus, that person will not perish, that has experienced the wrath and the judgment of God, but they will have life eternal. That is the biggest and boldest promise of all. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the work of God, lest any man should boast. The religions of the world tell us that for God to be favorable toward us, we have to be doing things. There must be something that you must do. Do this and God will be satisfied with you. Do this and God will be favorable toward you. Do this and God will bless you. And the Christian hope is not that we rest in our doing, but in the done of Jesus. This is the promise you and I must every day believe. It is not something that we must say, okay, yeah, I believed that when I was a child or many years ago. That is the promise that we must believe and continue to believe every day of our lives. But it is not by our doing, but it is believing and resting in the done of Jesus. God is fulfilling his promises. He will not fail one of them to you. So do not trust in religious leaders, do not trust in me, do not trust in your heritage. Perhaps you are raised and have been raised in a Christian home. That means nothing to the Lord. We do not come to God with a resume by which he will accept us. There are no grandchildren in the house of God. We come all as his children. We must all of us believe. Let me encourage you this morning. Trust only in the finished work of Jesus. He who lived a righteous life that you could not live. He who died in the place of sinners. And he who has risen again, showing that his death on the cross was accepted as as a sacrifice on our behalf. And he now stands, ascended before the Father pleading for his people trust in this savior he will not he cannot fail you two more things and i will go super quick first is that we see abram's response to this blessing by melchizedek is that he gives he gives God has been generous with him, and in response to God's blessing, he responds with thankfulness. And it's not because God needs it, because the blessing tells us God is the most high, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. God doesn't need our gifts. Rather, by giving to him, our heart follows our giving. If you are one of those people who over the last months or years, invested in Dogecoin. Am I saying that right? Dogecoin, it's a it's digital currency. It's become massively popular. If you've not been paying attention, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You are blessed. Ignorance is bliss in this. But Dogecoin has been on the news been rising and falling and those who have heavily invested in it have been rising and falling with it why because where your treasure is there will your heart be also and if you will invest in the things of this world wholeheartedly there your heart will be but if you invest in the Lord your heart will follow after him and that is what we do when we give we are investing in the things of God so that our heart longs for heaven and longs for the increase of the gospel here and around the world. Abram responds to the generous blessing of God with generous gratitude. And the last thing that we see is that he wants nothing to do. He wants none of his blessing of the Lord to be tarnished in any way by the blessing of the world. He refuses the gift of the king of Sodom. Why? He doesn't want anyone, anywhere, at any time to think that he got wealthy in any way because of the Sodom, because of the king of Sodom's generosity. He did not want to owe the king of Sodom anything. He didn't want to give oxygen to the idea that he got wealthy off of the world. He wants to be untarnished, This is why we, as a church, months ago, when the opportunity presented itself, the elders chose not to take the the government loan, not because it would be necessarily wrong to, but it's so that we wouldn't be tangled with anything else, that we relied solely on the generosity of God for his people. Brothers and sisters, as best as we are Able, we ought not to entangle our hearts and our treasures with the things of this world. We must remain committed, whether in our investments and with our time, with our resources, remain committed to honoring the Lord and not allowing our hearts to be sullied by that which is sin. Genesis 14 presents one event in Abram's life. And in this chapter, what we see is Abram living out his faith in God in every respect. May we learn to live out the faith that God has given us as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we need your wisdom how we need your grace. Help us, O God. Help us that we may live out that which is true. That we may trust you. And in trusting you, that we may live by such faith and have our faith in you touch all that we say and do in our lives. Give us wisdom to this end, that you may be glorified, our God. And that the name of Jesus, through the gospel, may expand and go forth. We pray this in Christ's name, our Savior Jesus. Amen.